0: If you would turn with me in your Bible to Mark chapter 6, we're in Mark chapter 6 this morning. We're going to look at the first 29 verses. Mark chapter 6, verse 1. Let's pray together. Father, you are good, and we trust you this morning. We're thankful for the beautiful weather. We're thankful for the future and hope that you've granted to us. Your mercies that are new this morning. God, we don't want to just go through the motions and have a routine without our hearts being connected. So we calm our hearts. We be still before you and recognize that you're God, that you're our Father. And we pray for your desires, your will in this service. We welcome you here, Holy Spirit. Give us ears to hear and hearts to understand in Jesus' name. Amen. You can't ask an acquaintance if he's had a good childhood. It's too personal. And a potential can of worms. But we're naturally curious, looking for clues about the situations that our friends come from. This interest comes out in questions like, what do your parents do? Are you close with your family? Have you been home recently? And even straightforward, where are you from? But what does a good childhood mean anyway? Most upbringings are complicated, mixed bags. Most parents try their best and all make mistakes. Parents, can I get an amen on that? Descriptions, whether words or images of the physical spaces of our formative years, hint at the relationships within, If these walls could talk, they would tell the tales long forgotten. Those words are pinned by Laura Miller. And that captivated me. You think about homes. And if the walls could talk, the stories that they would tell, right? Maybe you live in a home that was previously owned by someone else. And maybe they lived there for 20 years, 25 years, raised their kids there. And you wonder, I wonder what kind of experiences that they had inside of this home. What is it like for you to come home and that coming home experience? I remember for me as a kid, a very vivid memory is we would drive from southern Oregon up to the Portland area, cross the Columbia River, and go into Vancouver, Washington, where my parents were from. Both sets of grandparents lived there. It was about a five-hour drive. So there was lots of times we were driving home late at night, uh, fall asleep in the Ford Fairmont station wagon as a a young kid. It was a, a red station wagon pull into our driveway, and inevitably, I don't know why, you always wake up as a kid when you pull into your driveway. You just kind of wake up just a little bit, but I was always pretend to still be asleep so that my dad would come and get me and pick me up. I'd be in my PJs and set me down in my bed. And it was always a great feeling that, oh, we're home, and, and in the arms of dad, and he's putting me down to sleep. And in our text this morning, Jesus comes home. He, he's coming home. To where he grew up. We're going to see him experience his family, but it's a story of rejection. He's rejected by his half-brothers, his half-sisters. He's rejected by Nazareth in this city that he grew up in. And I'm sure for some of you, coming home is not a sweet experience. Yes, there's some fondness, but there's also a lot of brokenness there. There's a lot of rejection there, maybe even because you've shared Christ with your family. And they've rejected you because of that. Everything that we're going to see in the text this morning is very close to Jesus' heart, his hometown, his family. Also, then he's going to send out his disciples. They're going to go out and do ministry without him. That would be very close to his heart. He's launching them out. Then he gets news that his cousin and also the forerunner of Christ, John the Baptist, is beheaded. Each one of these experiences is very close to home for Christ. Let's begin our journey in verse 1. Then he went out from there and came to his own country, and his disciples followed him. The distance between Capernaum and Nazareth is about 20 miles, and a pretty good elevation gain. This last time that we were in Israel in February as a church, I was reminded about how much Jesus was an outdoorsman, how much time that he spent outside. How much time that he would spend hiking and walking from place to place. And time spent on a boat on the Sea of Galilee. So he walks to Nazareth with his disciples and they follow him. What do we know about this city, Nazareth? Well, it's not a designation place. One of the disciples, when he was being invited to investigate Jesus, said, well, Jesus is from Nazareth. And what did he say? Can anything good come from Nazareth? What is that in Colorado? What do we refer to in that context? Pueblo. You said it. You guys said it. <laughs> Can anything good come from Pueblo? Well, Why is that expressed that way? Because it's not a destination place. It's not a place that you're going to go spend on vacation. You probably won't take a week off of work and just go hang out in Pueblo. Unless you have family there. Unless you're, you're from there. And that's the kind of place that Nazareth was. It wasn't a place that was attractive. It wasn't a place that was well-known. It was, can anything good come out of Nazareth? But this sticks with Jesus, doesn't it? Because this is where he grew up as a carpenter's son, where he got the title Jesus of Nazareth. The, the reason for that is because this was his hometown, Nazareth. So they're coming in, and I wonder what Jesus is thinking, what this is stirring up inside of him as he's coming back to where he grew up. In verse 2, And when the Sabbath had come, he began to teach in the synagogues, And many hearing him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? And what wisdom is this which is given to him, that such mighty works are performed by his hands? So first response is they're astonished by his teachings. Where does this guy get this stuff? What commentaries are he reading? What website is he referring to? Then they're blown away by his wisdom, that he could take this knowledge and apply it in a practical way, astonished at his miracles. The mighty works that he's done. But this quickly changes in verse 3. Is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James, Joses, Judas, and Simon? Are not his sisters here with us? So they were offended at him. They say, this is the carpenter. He looks familiar. We know him to be the, the local carpenter. He's the son of Joseph who was a carpenter. Really spent the bulk of his years doing carpentry. I would have liked to check out some of the things that he built. I bet they were pretty awesome. Pretty near perfection, I bet, right? Hard to compete with the Son of God when it comes to his carpentry skills. This is a part of Jesus' life that a lot of times we don't reflect upon. He knows what it's like to go to work and do a mundane job. For it to be Monday morning. To not have a lot of credit for the things that, that, that he did. Where's Joseph in this scenario? He's absent, he's missing, and scripture doesn't tell us why. Most likely, he passed away. Most likely, he, he has died by, by this point. That would be pretty common. The lifespan's not near as long. So They say, you're the carpenter. And then they begin to say, you're the son of Mary. Believe it or not, this is ridiculing Christ, because in the Jewish culture, you're always known the son of your father. If you look at the genealogies, that's always how it's referred to. So to say you're the son of Mary was to bring shame upon Christ. And they're really trying to get at him by by saying this. Then they go on to say, look, here's James, here's Josephs; These are all the half brothers and sisters of Jesus. As Mary and Joseph went on to have normal husband and wife relationship, had kids. And as we look at Christ's immediate family, they don't believe in him. Outside of Mary, referring to his half-brothers and half-sisters, until after the resurrection. James, who's mentioned here, actually does get saved. We know that in the book of Acts. And he becomes the leader of the early church in Jerusalem. Writes the book of James that that we're familiar with. But at this point, they're rejecting Christ. And notice... His half-brothers and half-sisters, they're included in this, and they were offended at him. The word offended means to cause to stumble or to be appalled. They're, they're appalled at Christ. Something's happened here where their close proximity with Jesus, their familiarity with Jesus, has actually led to disdain. Actually has led to discontentment. And that can happen in our lives as well. Sometimes the people that we are around the most, we come to appreciate the less, the least. Sometimes, unfortunately, in our own families, with our spouse and, and our kids. You've heard the phrase, familiarity breeds contempt," doesn't it? Just because you're close in proximity to Christ doesn't mean that you will worship him and follow him. I knew this in my own life growing up in the church and hearing about Christ. It really became old hat. It became something I was familiar with but hadn't grabbed my heart and attention. Maybe you have never received Christ as your savior but you've been around Christ a lot. You've been around the church a lot. You've read your your Bible a lot but it's never gotten a hold of you. Maybe even as a believer, as the child of God, there's something about our relationship with the Lord that's gotten familiar to the point where we take it for granted and we start feeling things like, oh, I know this story. Oh, the feeding of the 5,000. I've, I've heard that before. I've shared that with others. I, I've got that down. And It's always refreshing to be around somebody who is a new believer or is just receiving Christ because we're so blown away with the majesty of Christ the forgiveness of Christ, the the power of Christ, and tend to believe God's word. If God's word says it, then then I believe it. And we don't ever want to lose that sense of of awe. You would think of all of the communities that Nazareth would have been the city that would have received Christ as Messiah because they had watched him grow up. They've witnessed his life, but that's not the case. In verse four, but Jesus said to them, a prophet's not without honor except in his own country among his own relatives, and in his own house. Jesus is saying, I've gone to these other communities in the Galilee region, and they have accepted me. We found throughout the book of Mark that multitudes are flocking to Christ, but now he comes to his hometown, and they reject him. You may want to write down Luke chapter 4. Because Luke chapter 4 verses 28 through 30 tell us that they rejected Christ to the point where they take him to the edge of the city of Nazareth and try to throw him off the cliff. You know, to say that they were offended at Christ was to communicate that lightly. They're trying to kill Christ. They're so appalled at Christ that they're trying to kill him. And Jesus just passes through the midst of them and went his way. It wasn't time for him to die yet, so he's like, not today, guys, and he just walks through this angry crowd that's trying to throw him off of the cliff. Some of you have experienced this as you have received Christ as your Savior. There's some in your family that aren't believers, and they are the most difficult to share with, aren't they? Maybe it's your parents. Maybe it's your brother, your sister. Maybe it's your spouse. You got saved, and your spouse isn't saved, and they look at you with absolute disdain, and they feel like You have wrecked the relationship because you've received Christ as your Savior. Well, I want you to be encouraged because you're in good company. Jesus says the most difficult to minister to is your own family. He says you're you're without honor inside of your own country. In verse 5, Now he could do no mighty work there except that he laid hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief... Then he went about the villages in a circuit teaching. The reason that Jesus could do no mighty work there, just healed a few people, Matthew chapter 13 clarifies this for us, was because of their unbelief. Their unbelief, their rejection of Christ being the Messiah, not believing that he had had the power, then Jesus, in a sense, he honors their unbelief and he does no mighty work there. Is there another community, another group of people that missed out on what God wanted to do in their midst because of unbelief? The children of Israel, when they were set free out of Egypt. They experienced the hand of God like no other group. The plagues that God poured out to get Pharaoh's attention where finally Pharaoh was allowed for them to go. Then God's provision for them in the wilderness. God parting the Red Sea, providing a Cloud by day as they're walking in the intense heat and a pillar of fire by night. Manna from heaven every morning. Far out, pretty nice. No need to go to King Supers or Sprouts. And when Sprouts is having a sale, you can lose your life over there. It's nuts, right? Not, no reason to have to pick up the Cheerios and those kind of things or granola. It's manna from heaven every morning. Their clothes didn't wear out. God really provided in a supernatural way. But they get to the promised land. Twelve spies go in. And ten come back with this report. And they say, we're just grasshoppers in their sight. They're giants. They're huge. These guys should be offensive linemen for the Denver Broncos. I mean, they're tanks. There's no way that we can go up against them. They have walled cities. Two guys came back with a report of faith. A report of belief. It's Caleb and Joshua. So that generation never entered into the promised land. They died in the wilderness except for Caleb and Joshua. Wouldn't it be tragic in our lives if we missed out on what Jesus desired to do because of unbelief? For some of you, it might be salvation. You don't believe Jesus is who he says he is and you don't experience Christ saving you and having eternal life. As believers, it may be that we're still the children of God, but there's things that God wants to do in our lives, but we're not experiencing it because we don't trust him. God tells us that we walk by faith, not by sight. That's difficult, isn't it? I want to go by what I see, what I sense, what I touch, and God says, Eric, you've got to walk by faith. He says, without faith, it's impossible to please him. The just shall live by faith. Is there a circumstance? Is there a difficulty? Is there something in our lives that we're not trusting the Lord in? And we know in our hearts, I know when I'm wrestling, I know when I'm holding on to it, and I'm not putting it into God's care. And many times that's a moment to moment struggle. That's that's a real place to be. And to be able to say, God, I choose to trust you. I, I choose to put this in your hands. How can we trust the Lord? How do we know that He's good? We sang this morning that he is good. How do we know that? Because of what Christ has done upon the cross. In the trials and the confusion of life, we look at Calvary. We look at his death. We go, God, I know you're good because you gave your son to die for my sins upon the cross. That's the cornerstone. That's the anchor to my soul. Maybe you're experiencing a struggle in faith and you feel like, you know what, Pastor Eric, my, my faith is just weak this morning. Romans 10, 17 says, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. We don't need a pep talk to build up our faith. You know, screaming real loud is not going to build up our faith. Getting super pumped up isn't necessarily how our faith is going to become strong. It's by being in the word of God, reading it, listening to it, meditating upon it, and we find our faith being strengthened. Something needs to be clarified here. I think you know what it is. I am not teaching, nor do I think the scripture teaches, that if you have faith in God, then everything goes just the way that we want it to. That puts us in charge instead of God being in charge. He's not reduced down to a genie up in the sky that fulfills all my wants and desires just the way that I expect it to. Sometimes, yes. Yes. But oftentimes, no. So faith is to trust, God, here's the situation, here's what I desire in this situation, but I know that you're going to do what's best, so I trust you. Because some would take this section of scripture and they would teach it in a name it and claim it type of way. Blab it and grab it. If you just have enough faith, and God's going to do his work in your life. And if you have faith in the Lord, he is going to do work in your life. But it's his work, not my work. It's his will, not my will. And it's going to be absolutely what what is best for the kingdom and for his purposes and for his glory. And so for me, it's then to trust that. Church, I want to enter into all that God has for me. I want us to enter into all that God has for us. I want us to be a community of people, a body of believers that says we trust the Lord. He's good. He's good. And that God's not limited to do what he desires because of our unbelief. At the end of verse 6, notice that Jesus kept going. He didn't allow this personal rejection from his family to keep him from continuing on to share the Father's love. Now he sends out the 12 disciples, and he called the 12 to himself. This is when it gets exciting. This is when the Christian life gets exciting, when we realize that Jesus is calling us to himself. It's personal. It's individual. Eric, come spend time with me. I've got things to share with you. And Jesus will call us to himself. He'll say, follow me, so that he can then send us out. That he can commission us. And I believe this is a very exciting and personal moment for Christ. Because he's been investing in his disciples. And now he gets to say, all right guys, now it's your time to go out and experience the power of the Father kind of like when you're launching your kids off to college, when you're launching them into marriage, when you're launching them into life. And he began to send them out two by two, and he gave them power over unclean spirits. We learn a lot of things about God's work in the way that he commissions the disciples. I was refreshed by this this week. And the first is this, is that God's work must be done, must not be done alone. God's work must not be done alone. He sends them out two by two. God's model for ministry is a team. Paul, the Apostle Paul, we never see him serving alone. We always see him with another group of men. Two is better than one. The book of Ecclesiastes teaches us that. We find ourselves in danger to the attack of the enemy, to temptation when we're serving alone. So when God sends you out, he's going to send you in a team. It might be a small team. It might just be one other person. I believe if you're married, you've found your teammate. God's brought you together to send you out for kingdom purposes. You might not have the exact same ministry, but you're going to support one another. You're going to be in it together. You're not going to be alone in the midst of that. If you're single, God's going to bring a friend into your life. It may be that God is calling you down the hall to children's ministry. It could be a long walk, but go check it out. There's a whole thing happening right down the hall The Lord's putting third graders on your heart. You know what would be really awesome? Is do that with your spouse. Do that with a friend. Say, hey, let's go do children's ministry together. Let's go fill out the volunteer application online. Let's let them know we want to do that together. And the joys you're going to be able to rejoice in. When a third grader receives Christ as their Savior, you're going to be able to go, wow, that was so awesome. When their hearts are open to the message, you're going to go, God's so good. But then also when you have some difficult kids that are goofing off and you've got to ask them to go sit in the hall for a few minutes, you're going to be able to pray together. When it seems like all they're doing is picking their nose and eating it right in class and that the word's not getting in there at all, you can encourage one another. It may be that God's calling you downtown to, to love on people, to listen to people's stories. Go with someone. Don't, don't go alone. Whatever it is, it's important to be able to serve together. We believe in this as a pastoral team. If we go to teach at other churches, or go to a conference, or go visit missionaries, we don't go alone. We always go with another pastor, or go with a a family member, because we see the importance of going out in two. The next thing that we see is God gave them power over unclean spirits. God's work must be done in his power. God's calling the disciples to do something that they don't have the power to do, and that's the same for us. As God is sending us out, and we have to do it in his power. The disciples don't have power in and of themselves over demons, but God gave them this supernatural power. And this is when I think that God really shows up, is when we step out to serve. You might be saying, I've been a Christian for a long time, and I've never experienced God's power. Well, step out to serve. Step out in some area, whether it's inside of the church or outside of the church. And say, I am feeling the Holy Spirit stirring me to this. And I'm saying yes. And I'm being obedient to the Lord. And God will be faithful to give his power. But we have to be careful to rely upon it. We've got to be careful not to do it in our own strength. It's not by power, by might, but by his Spirit, says the Lord. The Holy Spirit will strengthen us and equip us. The next two verses are totally mind-blowing and don't even line up with any strategies with church planting. I mean, what Jesus tells them to do here in verse 8 and 9 is really radical and a big step of faith. He commanded them to take nothing for their journey except a staff. No bag, no bread, no copper in their money belts, not even a bag of chips, but to wear sandals and not to put on two tunics. Jesus says, I just want you guys to go with what you're wearing. You can take a staff, but leave your wallet don't take any money with you. Don't take any provisions. I just want you to go. If I'm one of the disciples, I'd be like, I'm going to slip a 20 in my back pocket just in case, you know. This whole idea that people are going to welcome us into their homes, what if nobody does? I need to have a backup plan. Sends them out with no resources. So we see with God's work is God's work is done in simplicity. How refreshing. This is simple saying, go, love people, pray for people, anoint the sick with oil. We have a tendency to complicate God's work, don't we? I think a lot of times as pastoral teams and leadership and staff of churches, it's very easy for us to complicate God's work. We're well-intending. We want to see lost come to know the Lord. We want to see the body of Christ loved and encouraged, But we can come up with all of these really complex ideas of how to be able to do it. All these strategies. And here, there's no strategies. The strategy is go. The strategy is love. The strategy is talk to people. The strategy is preach repentance. Go. It's simple. And how many times in our own lives do I, I feel God's stirring to, to reach out to a neighbor or share with somebody at the grocery store or to take some time to, to be able to pray or serve inside of the church and I make it really complicated? I don't know if I have time for that. I don't know what they're going to say. Oh, they've probably heard it before. I've got to do all these steps first before I can do that step. And God says, just keep it simple. Keep it simple. Go in my name, love people, Sends him out with nothing. And that brings us to the next point. Is God's work is done through his provision. Do we believe that God's able to provide for his work? I think the flow of this falls pretty naturally. There's unbelief in Nazareth. But there's belief inside of the disciples. There's faith inside of the disciples. This takes trust that someone's going to open up their home. Every night for them to come in and have a place to sleep. And have food to be able to eat. This is something that we believe in here at our church, is that God is faithful to provide for his work at, at RMC. One of the things that you've probably noticed is we don't uh, pass an offering. I don't think that there's anything wrong with churches passing an offering because giving is biblical and we honor God with our finances. But there's several reasons as we've sought the Lord why we don't do that. And, and the first is this, is we don't want unbelievers... To come, not come to RMC because they think all we're going to do is ask for their money. Like, if you invite somebody who's unchurched that doesn't know Christ their Savior, what's probably one of their arguments of why they wouldn't come to church? Well, they're just going to ask for my money, right? So you can bring somebody here that doesn't know Christ their Savior, and a plate's not going to be passed in front of them. We're going to teach giving as we go through the scripture, but, because it's important, but we're not going to pass the plate. Another reason is we want giving to be between you and the Lord, for you to really pray about it, to be able to give as there's boxes out in the foyer, to give as there's that opportunity to be able to do that online, but to be a cheerful giver. Seek God, not to feel pressured because a plate's being passed in front of you and go, man, people are really watching. I I guess I better find a, a $10 bill to put in it's kind of strange if you're not used to church and an offering gets passed. As a kid, I grew up in a church where that happened and I was always going, man, people are just throwing their money in there. Like, I wonder if I could put in a $1 bill and take a 20 you know? Make some change here in, in my, my direction. <laughs> so giving's between you and the Lord. But I think the most important for me personally is I want to see God provide for this church. I want to know that he wants our church to be in existence, And what's a practical way to do that is that he's going to provide for our needs. If God stops providing for our needs financially, then I guess it's time for RMC to be done. And that's okay. He can close the doors if he wants to close the doors. We want to be here because he wants us to be here. And thankfully, God has been faithful to provide for for RMC. So God will fund his work. And a lot of times we don't step out in faith because we go, I don't have the resources. That tends to be the direction that my mind goes. It's going to take a lot of time. It's going to take a lot of money. I don't have the time. I don't have the money. I don't have the resources. I don't have the experience. And so we go, you know what? I'm not going to step out into God's work. And God says, no, you step out first and I'll provide the resources. He will fund his work. Anybody take high school chemistry? Did you find it extremely boring? Until you got to blow something up. And you're like, maybe there is something to this periodic table of elements, right? And in a lot of ways, that's the Christian life. We, we study God's Word. We read it for ourselves. We study it together. But until we step out to serve, until we step out to share, until we start serving the body of Christ and serving others, we don't experience the power of it. In a spiritual sense, we get to see stuff blow up. Not for destruction, but for edification and for the kingdom. In verse 10, And he said to them, In whatever place you enter a house, stay there till you depart from that place. This would prevent confusion and hurt from jumping around from house to house in a community. And whoever will not receive you nor hear you when you depart from there, shake off the dust underneath your feet as a testimony against them. Assuredly, I say to you, it'll be more tolerable for Sodom and Gomorrah and the day of judgment than for that city. Jesus dealt with rejection and continued on in ministry and serving. Saying, guys, not everyone's going to accept your message. So be able to shake the dust off of your feet. And God will then judge those communities. Sodom and Gomorrah from the Old Testament. Two cities that God wiped out. And here Jesus is saying, it's going to be better For Sodom and Gomorrah, than it'll be for these communities. So, this is the sober reality that there is God's judgment for rejecting Christ and his message. Have some of you stopped serving because you got hurt, because you got rejected? Maybe you got rejected by the church and hurt by the church. And so you said, I'm going to love Jesus, but I'm not going to serve in the church anymore. I'm not going to be close to believers. Was there a time past that we used to share the gospel, but we got rejected? And so we say, you know what? I'm going to love Jesus, but, but I'm done sharing the gospel. we got to let Jesus heal our hearts, shake the dust off our feet, and keep moving. Because there will be people that will be open. And there will be people that receive the message. In verse 12, So they went out and preached that the people should repent. U-turn, change of mind, change of direction. Turning away from sin, turning to Christ. John the Baptist taught repentance. Jesus taught repentance. The disciples went and preached repentance. And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed. They went out and did ministry the way Christ was doing ministry. We know in James chapter 5, it says if you're sick, call for the elders of the church. Ask them to anoint you with oil, to to pray for you. Pastors are available here in the front after services if you'd like for elders of the church to to pray for you. And this is the only time in the Gospels that we see the disciples being an example of this. They went out anointing with oil those who were sick. In verse 14, the attention now goes upon John the Baptist, the third scene, first Nazareth, commissioning of the disciples, now John the Baptist. Now King Herod heard of him for his name had become well known. He'd heard of Jesus. And he said, John the Baptist is risen from the dead, and therefore these powers are at work in him. Herod had John the Baptist killed. He hears of all that Jesus is doing, and he thinks, could it be possible that John the Baptist rose from the dead? Herod is a title that was given to a leader. So there's several Herods in the New Testament. Herod the Great was the one that ordered the babies to be killed in Bethlehem all boys, two years old and younger, in an attempt to try to kill Christ. This is Herod Antipas, the son of Herod the Great. Herod the Great had three sons, and Herod Antipas was one of them. Herod Antipas also would have Jesus come before him at the trial of Christ. Pilate's overwhelmed with what to do with Jesus, so he sends Jesus before Herod. What a moment that would have been for Christ, standing before the one who, who had had John the Baptist beheaded. So this Herod Antipas dealt with John the Baptist, and he also dealt with Jesus. In verse 15, others said it's Elijah, and others said it's a prophet, or like one of the prophets. Everybody seems to have an opinion about Christ. Herod's like, I think it's John the Baptist raised from the dead. Others are saying this is Elijah. Others saying this is the prophet that's prophesied in the Old Testament, or one of the prophets. Haven't you guys found that everybody has an opinion about Jesus? Have you ever met somebody who's like, I've never even heard of Jesus. Tell me who this guy is. They maybe have the wrong information, but they've formed an opinion about Jesus. And I think that speaks to the power of Christ, the reality of Christ. In verse 16, But when Herod heard, he said, This is John the Baptist, who I'm beheaded. He has been raised from the dead. His guilty conscience is haunting him. He had John the Baptist beheaded. And he's thinking, man, John the Baptist raised from the dead. So now we get the story of why Herod had John the Baptist beheaded. For Herod himself had sent and laid hold of John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, for he had married her. Because John said to Herod, it's not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. So Herod... Divorces his wife and takes his brother's wife, Herodias. John the Baptist could have easily said, You know what? I'm not going to say anything about this. This guy is very powerful. He could have me thrown in prison. But John the Baptist stands up and says, This is not lawful. This does not line up with God's word. This is not what God intended for marriage and sexuality. So, Herod goes and arrests John the Baptist because of that stance. Herodias, his new wife, that was his brother's wife, gets really angry and begins to plot for John the Baptist's death. This hit me a couple years ago, and it really caused a lot of things to make sense in my mind. What are people most upset about in regards to the Bible today? God's message on marriage and sexuality. If you really want to find out where people are at in regards to the Bible, tell them what God's plan is for marriage and sexuality, and you know that you will find opposition in culture. I'm not talking about in the church, sometimes in the church, but especially in the world. And we're finding it more and more, aren't we? This real hatred for God's message on marriage and sexuality. And it's been completely flipped, where the loving thing to do is to embrace any definition of marriage— And the hateful thing to do is to say that marriage is between a husband and a wife. But we know that God's plan is best, and it's actually loving to say marriage is between a man and a woman, because that's God's plan that leads to abundant life. And the light bulb that went on in my head is this. John the Baptist got killed for his message on marriage and sexuality, and it was God's message. So... There has been opposition to biblical marriage and biblical sexuality for a long, long time. And I think it comes back to Satan. Why? Because Satan wants to destroy people's lives. So if he can get people to believe a lie about marriage and a lie about sex, that's going to be a great way for him to destroy people's lives. And that's why there's such opposition to God's message. So do we back down from God's message? Did John the Baptist back down from, from God's message? Did he say, well, this isn't a very important issue. I'm, I'm not going to make this a, an issue. No, he continued to share the truth about, about, about this, this issue. And I'm not ashamed of God's message on marriage or sexuality. Why? Because it's a great plan. It works. It's the way that God designed things. And we want to share that with people because we want them to experience the fullness of what God has. In verse 19, you guys still with me? doing okay you guys see that happening in culture okay verse 19 therefore Herodias held it against him and wanted to kill him but she could not for Herod feared John knowing that he was a just and holy man and he protected him and when he heard him he did many things and heard him gladly so he wanted to hear Jesus and he respected Jesus or excuse me John the Baptist but he didn't receive John the Baptist's message Also, at the trial of Christ, he was excited to hear Jesus, but yet he didn't surrender his heart to Jesus. In verse 21, Then an opportune day came when Herod, on his birthday, gave a feast for his nobles and high officers and the chief men of Galilee. The who's who comes together. And when Herodias' daughter herself came in and danced and pleased Herod and those who sat with him, the king said to the girl, Ask whatever you want, and I will give it to you. And he swore to her, whatever you ask me, I will give you up to half the kingdom. It appears that Herodias' daughter comes in and dances in a seductive way. And this pleases Herod, and then he gives this oath and says, you can ask whatever you want up to half the kingdom. Herodias is behind this. She's playing the whole thing. She knows Herod. She knows how he's going to respond. And you think about this deviant heart where she wants to kill John the Baptist, and she's willing to use her daughter in this way as a tool to get the means that, that she would want. In verse 24, So she went out and said to her mother, What shall I ask? And she said, The head of John the Baptist. She didn't have to think about it. You know, wasn't like, Well, that vineyard over here is pretty nice. Or I'll have this or have that. There's one thing that she wanted. She wanted to silence this voice of conviction in her life. She says, I want the head of John the Baptist. Immediately she came in with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. So the daughter comes in very quickly, and she says, I I want John the Baptist's head served in on a platter. It wasn't enough just to have him killed, but this public display. And the king was exceedingly sorrow, yet because of the oaths and because of those who sat with him, And he didn't want to refuse her. So in his heart, he didn't want to kill John the Baptist. But he had made this oath and didn't want to let down this group of officials. Lame excuse. Lame excuse. Doesn't hold up. He had the opportunity to say, no, I'm not giving you John the Baptist's head. I don't care what I said. You can have me lose my power and lose my position, but I'm not being pressured into this. We always have the opportunity to do right, even if we've done wrong leading up to that point. You might find yourself in that position where you're like, man, I really don't want to do this, but I have to do this. I said that I would do this. I committed that I would do this. Man, if it's sinful and it's dishonoring to God, stand up to your conviction before the Lord. Amen? He had the opportunity to do right, even though he had made this oath. In verse 27, immediately the king sent an executioner, and commanded his head to be brought. And he went and beheaded him in prison, brought his head on a platter, and gave it to the girl. And the girl gave it to her mother. When his disciples heard of it, they came and took away his corpse and laid it in a tomb. Remember John the Baptist question when he was in prison? He was wrestling with Is Jesus the Messiah? Even though he had anointed, appointed Jesus as Messiah, he was the forerunner. Sends a messenger to Christ and saying, are you the one or should I look for another? What was Christ's answer? Blessed are those who are not offended because of me. Blessed are those who don't stumble because of me. Paraphrase, John, even though you're in prison, keep trusting me and don't be offended by my ways in your life. Personally, I don't think that John the Baptist expected that he would be in prison. As the forerunner of Christ, he probably didn't anticipate that it would mean prison and execution. And I really believe that John received what Jesus told him. He said, okay, I'm going to trust you. I'm going to be faithful to you, even if it ends in me losing my life. And he's martyred. We think about the ministry of John the Baptist. He's pointing to Christ— And his ministry parallels Jesus. John the Baptist was walking towards a brutal death that God had ordained for him. Jesus was walking towards a brutal death that the Father had ordained for him. And John is pointing to Christ even in his death. So here's a little bit of a shock to our system. And I don't necessarily like it. It makes me uncomfortable as well, but I think it's biblical. Serving the Lord in faithfulness does not guarantee an easy life. It doesn't guarantee a life without suffering. It doesn't guarantee that things are always going to go our way. But a faithful life of service is always worthwhile, isn't it? Always worthwhile. John the Baptist's life is worthwhile, even though the Lord allowed it to end in him being beheaded. How do you think this affected the heart of Christ as we think about things that are close to Christ's heart? I I think it brought a lot of sorrow in his life. This is his cousin. This is his his forerunner. I think it affected him and it impacted him. If you've been paying attention to the news the last two years, there's been a lot of Christians that have been martyred in the Middle East. We're really seeing an uptick of Christians being killed. Not only Christians being persecuted, but Christians being killed. If you research articles, there's a lot of articles by Credible Resources of how ISIS has been killing Christians in Syria and northern Iraq. And they're gruesome and they're difficult to read, but they're also inspiring because Christians are being challenged to deny Christ. Saying, if you will convert and you'll be a Muslim and you'll give your allegiance to Allah, then we'll spare your life. And they say, no, I'm not going to deny Christ. Even though they know it's certain death and then they're martyred similar to ways like John the Baptist was. And so we see that this is an outcome that God sometimes allows, doesn't he? And it causes us to realize what it's really all about is eternal life. Herod didn't win. Herod didn't have the victory. John went into eternal life. These Christians that are being martyred, they go into eternal life. But it's difficult. It's challenging for us. And I think especially as American Christians, where our lives have tended to be pretty easy, When we're confronted with this reality that sometimes serving the Lord results in suffering, it shakes us up a little bit. But it's worth it. It's worth it. So how do we apply this message this morning? Well, we think about rejection from family. And we apply God's word and we say, okay, Jesus was rejected by family and close friends. I want to continue serving the Lord. I also don't want to get so familiar with Christ that I dismiss him the way that Nazareth did. God, protect me from unbelief. I think there's a point here in this study where we get alone with God today. And we say, God, what are you doing? You've been investing all these things into my life. You've saved me. You've given me your love and your favor. I'm learning your word. And where do you want me to serve? How can I be a blessing to the body of Christ? How can I reach out to unbelievers? Where's my teammate? And let's go for it. Let's go from the lecture to the lab. Let's see some things blow up for the kingdom in a good way and begin to take those steps of faith. And then we wrestle with John the Baptist and his death. We say, okay, Lord, even if it means suffering, I want to be faithful to you. Or even if it means challenge and difficulty, I want to be faithful to you. Would you stand with me and let's pray together. Jesus, thank you for your life, your ministry, your death, your resurrection. Thank you for this section of scripture. Would you help us to trust you? Would you identify those areas of our lives where unbelief is present? We want to surrender and rely upon you completely. Would you speak to us in ways that you're calling us out, that you're sending us individually and corporately as a church? Would you help us to be obedient to to your calling? And God, may we be inspired by John the Baptist's life, not afraid, but encouraged that it's worth it. It's always worth it to serve you in faithfulness. So as we worship, would you meet us in a special way?